CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It's Tuesday, February the 6th, and your Ben Jarofsky show starts now. On today's show, Ben talks the top stories in news, international news, and much more with Dr. Thayer Amah. The Ben Jarofsky Show, a presentation of the Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, what's happening in politics, art, culture in the city of Chicago, you can keep your finger on the pulse just by spending some time at chicagoreader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Streets and Segregation Tuesday, and here's why. Absolutely fantastic piece of history in today's Chicago Sun-Times. Shout out, Bright One. It's uh, a story about the development of the Kennedy Expressway. You know, it's like an urban legend in Chicago, uh, the construction of the Kennedy and where it was uh, the course it took. And when I talk to millennials and Zs, like they've heard about it. Some of them are more knowledgeable than others, but some of them have occasionally like heard about it. It's like I said, like the the, the amount of ignorance uh, in Chicago, and I say this as you know, Chicago, I love you on all that, and I chose to live here and everything. But you're really ignorant about your history. It's astounding, uh, and your ignorance is, continues to this day. Ninety percent of you cannot even do not understand the TIF program, and I just love that. It's like to me, that's just sort of like. It sums it all up. Like, this is the only economic development program you have, Chicago. It raises your taxes, and you're like staggeringly ignorant about it. Just it's just an example. People go, Ben, you're obsessed with tiffs. No, I think there's there. It's a parable for all the weird things that Chicago represents. Anyway, I went on a tangent here about the ignorance of Chicago, but even millennials and Zs and. Baby boomers that they've heard about it and something, but they don't want, you know, they're not that curious. I don't want to take the deep dive and read about this stuff because I have more important things to do. Okay. Like, I don't know. Worry about the bears. I'm speaking to myself there. But anyway, uh, good job by reporters Susie Schultz, Richard Kahan, and Michael Williams. Uh, an article about uh, how the powers to be in the city of Chicago, led by then Mayor Richard J. Daly. Look them up. Youngsters, there was a daily before the daily, you know. I'm so confused, Ben. Two dailies, how he shaped the design of that expressway, uh, to essentially segregate Chicago. And that's like even that's a euphemism, segregate Chicago, because really, in their mind, they were protecting Chicago. This is how they saw it. They saw like black people as a threat to Chicago, and so they were protecting Chicago, particularly the downtown. It's like, this is your city, Chicago. You know, I have to say it. Anyway, that's your history, Chicago. Uh, and it's going on right now just to 
inform you like in a discussion and debate about moving the Chicago White Sox from Bridgeport uh, to the 78, which is that uh, undeveloped sl- slice of land in the South Loop. And, and they talk about it. They're euphemistically they talk about preserving the loop, adding to the loop. And it's so funny because yesterday I tried to go to my uh, road runner, a shoe store on the north side to buy some shoes. I desperately need some new shoes, man. And I drove over there and it was closed. The whole shopping mall is closed right across the river, right near Lincoln Yards. So anytime you sink money into one venture to promote it, you're doing it at the detriment of another area. And we just keep doing the same old thing in the city of Chicago. Anyway, I'll stop there. And shout out one more time. Susie Schultz, Richard Kahan, Michael Williams, Streets and Segregation. Very clever headline uh, in the bright one. I urge everybody to check it out. All right. I want to bring on my distinguished guest, um, Dr. Theramon. And um, he's been patiently sitting through my uh, diatribe there. And I thank you for doing that uh, there. So first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again. Yes, again. And again and again, if necessary. Uh, So just to remind folks, uh, Thayer, I want to call you Dr. Ahmad, but uh, I'm going to call you Thayer. Please do. Call you Dr. Ahmad every now and then. Um, But was my guest, uh, I want to say two months ago, uh, sort of the uh, outset of uh, Israel's uh, bombing uh, attacks uh, on Gaza and uh, was talking about the critical medical issues uh, that Gaza is facing. And uh, subsequent to that, they visited Gaza. And uh, he said, he promised me, Ben, when I return, and there was no like, if I return, but when I return, uh, I will return to your humble little podcast and be a witness. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, welcome back, Cotter, to my humble little podcast, uh, there, and you can be our eyewitness, uh, to what life is like in Gaza, uh, as we head into how many months since Hamas slaughtered the Israelis on October 7th. So this is, uh, November, December, June 4th. Wow. Uh, senseless carnage in Gaza brought on by senseless carnage on October 7th. That's my view of things. So just let people know exactly who you are and why you care about this issue. So why don't you just repeat some of the stuff you told us the first time, who you are and why you care. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I'm somebody who was born at Cook County Hospital, uh, born and raised on the south side of Chicago, went to medical school in Chicago and subsequently did some training in, in Detroit for emergency medicine and came back and practiced on the south side of Chicago as an emergency medicine physician. I'm also the global health director and I've been passionate about global health and humanitarian response since 2008, something that I've been working and volunteering in. And so particularly conflict areas, natural disasters, these are all things that um, I've kind of carved out a niche in and like to at least put forth some efforts uh, in trying to alleviate some of the suffering. And on top of all of this, I am the son of two Palestinian immigrants to the Chicagoland area. I belong to the Palestinian diaspora here, uh, largest Palestinian American community in the United States. Um, So these are all sort of uh, some identifying factors that kind of help explain who I am. And so when all of this started on October 7th, 
Um, it's something that many people in the Palestinian American community in Chicago, as well as um, the Jewish community, the Christian community, I think a lot of people were paying very close attention to what was happening on that side of the world. And as things grew increasingly worse from a humanitarian uh, situation in Gaza, I knew that this was something that um, I needed to do something about. But the problem was there was no ability to get in. I mean, it was really hard to get in bottled water into Gaza Strip. Um, so being able to actually go and serve as a physician and try to help the healthcare workers there, um, that was something that became uh, very difficult. But it was something that we knew that eventually that would happen. And then the beginning of January, we got word that we might be able to join some emergency medical team as a part of the World Health Organization. Um, I'm a board member of uh, MedGlobal, a medical humanitarian NGO. And so five of us decided to join the WHO's emergency medical teams. And, and we left Chicago in early January and uh, made our way towards Gaza. All right. When you say we got word, who did you get word from that you could go to Gaza? So, Ben, like the the humanitarian NGO community is a very small community. Everybody knows each other. And so usually the WHO does not need NGOs to send volunteers a part of their emergency medical teams, their EMT um, sort of groups. But Gaza is different. Gaza is a lot more dangerous. Over 300 healthcare workers have been killed in Gaza. And so, as you can imagine, it's not something that um, you can just tell people to go to. You're going to need to ask volunteers to risk um, entering and kind of participate in that. And so um, it became known that the World Health Organization said, we need people to serve on these EMT teams. And MedGlobal said, yeah, we have people who are ready to go. And so um, that was how the process started. And luckily it worked out. We were um, invited to join and we got out of here uh, on January 5th. And uh, so let's talk about that. January 5th, uh, I presume you boarded a plane at uh, either O'Hare or Midway. It doesn't really matter, though. I'm, I'm kind of uh, weirdly interested in details like that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, where did it take you? Yeah. So we showed up to O'Hare. We had um, four of us were left from O'Hare. We had another uh, ICU doctor leave from Philly. But in total, we brought 17 bags worth of medical supplies. I mean, everything from... Uh, you know, laceration trays so you can stitch up um, some, you know, some cuts to uh, chest tubes and all these sorts of different devices and, and, and medicines. And we flew into Cairo. Um, and that's really the only way to access Gaza right now is to go through Egypt. And so we landed in Cairo. Uh, of course, three out of the 17 bags were lost in the shuffle somehow, but that's, you know, we were able to, we were able to recover those eventually. Um, but we went to Cairo and the very next day we met at the WHO headquarters in Cairo and we worked on figuring out how we were going to get to Gaza. And what they told us is, hey, at the crack of dawn, you're going to hop in a bunch of these convoys, these buses, put as, you know, stuff your bags in there and you're going to take around a 10 hour journey to get to the border between Egypt and Gaza. And that's what we did. The next day we hopped in there and it was um, it was plenty of other humanitarian organizations. We were like the only medical team with doctors, um, but there were people there who were focused on, you know, children and nutrition and shelter and all of that. And it was around seven or eight uh, buses of people who, uh, who made that journey. Now, when you say a 10 hour journey, is it 10 hours just because of the length, the, the distance between Cairo and Gaza, or is it compounded by delays at various checkpoints? That's a great question. So if you were just to look at the distance, it should probably take you four hours to get from Cairo to the border. Um, but 
it's the Sinai Peninsula that you have to transverse to get there. And so there are several checkpoints along the way. Um, the Egyptians um, are very strict about who is getting access to the Sinai and who is going to make it to Gaza. And so along the way, you're getting stopped. You're giving out your, your documents, your passports. They're searching the car if they need to. They're making you get out of the car and making sure that who they, you know, however many people left Cairo are the same number of people that are, uh, you know, making that checkpoint. And um, on top of that, there are, you know, there are different political reasons for that in Egypt, like within the Sinai Peninsula, it has its own complications and different tribes there that uh, may want to be separatist in nature. But, um, you know, they're, they're, that's kind of what makes the journey so long is that you got to make all of these stops along the way. And um, it's, uh, it's like you're crossing each time. It's like you're crossing into a new country. And are the people that are stopping you and looking at your passport and asking you questions, are they Egyptian soldiers? Yep, exactly. It's the Egyptian military. Um, that's who you see that's there. Um, there. And you know, what's, you know what's actually really interesting that I found? I, I was like, there has to be a better way. Is they're all writing this on paper. So you get out, they're writing your passport number, your name, how many bags are in there. And then they're going in there, they're picking up a phone and then they're calling and you're like, there might be a more efficient way to do this, but you know, like whatever works for them. I don't think efficiency is even a consideration. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're try trying to make it easy to get uh, into Gaza. You get what I'm saying? It's yes, like, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, we'll go piece of paper. They'll go old school on you. Uh, so uh, you make it to any any like moments, scary, frightening moments in that part of the trip, or was it pretty relatively yeah. smooth? Not nothing was frightening, but really, once you get close, I mean, once we were about an hour outside of Gaza, one thing that struck all of us was the the lines of humanitarian aid trucks that are just stalled there, not able to get in for whatever reason. You know, I'm not sure I wasn't able to speak to any of these drivers, but I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of these humanitarian aid trucks just parked on the side of the road as you're getting closer and closer to Gaza and you're. Um, you know, in the, and you know that they're humanitarian aid trucks because all of them have these flyers on them. They are like they have the paper on it that says, you know, um, heading to the people of Gaza from the people of Kuwait or from the people of Turkey or USAID or whatever it is. You know, I mean, all of the different organizations on there. And so, you know, that's something that I think all of us were taken aback by just, you know, the sheer volume of all of these trucks, knowing that, you know, every single day in Gaza, there's about 100 trucks that enter and, you know, they need around a thousand of them. All right, so I'm going to uh, interject for a moment with a little uh, observation, which I feel compelled to make at this point. We're talking essentially about 2 million uh, Palestinians who are locked into Gaza. Uh, they can't go to Israel, and they can't go to Egypt. And Israel and Egypt have their own reasons for locking the Palestinians in Gaza. There's internal dynamics, obviously, in both countries. Uh, and uh, there's a front page article in the New York Times, if you want to take a deeper dive, about the ongoing debate in the state of Israel. Very heated debate in the state of Israel about the policies of Netanyahu. So I urge everybody, you don't have to uh, you'll just go fight it on the New York Times. And I'm sure there's all sorts of internal debates within the government of Egypt uh, regarding the sensitivity, if you will. I'm just choosing that word euphemistically there about allowing Palestinians to come to Egypt and the impact that would have on Egypt. I'm sure it's not that much different than the so-called debate we're having in the city of Chicago about allowing Venezuelans mm -hmm. to enter our city. So we're not 
that much better than either Egypt or Israel. I'm just pointing that out there, taking that moment to yeah. reflect. Do you want to respond in any way, or do you want yeah. to go back to your narrative? No, I think you bring up uh, two, you know, some some good points here. First and foremost, I think um, people should understand that Egypt, as a country, is in shambles financially. Forty um, percent of their GDP goes to paying debts, um, so they are. Uh, struggling, they're in the process of trying to get bailed out by the IMF or the World Bank. They're, you know, entertaining those offers. They're even considering selling one of their main tourist areas to UAE investors. I mean, they're selling off pieces of land here. So um, I think that plays into the equation here. And then the second part of this um, that plays into the equation is that Egypt. Actually, when I was in, uh, when I was leaving out of Gaza, it was the anniversary of uh, the revolution in 2012, January 25th, and so. Um, it is recovering from a time when they feel like the politics within the Gaza Strip resemble the politics during the revolution. And so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things at play. So you bring up a really good point when you talk about um, kind of why things are the way that they are um, in Gaza right now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a topic for another uh, conversation. We could talk at great length about the politics in Israel and the politics in Egypt and how it impacts Palestinians. But let's move on with our narrative. Uh, and uh, okay, so you finally clear all these checkpoints in the Sinai and you make your way into Gaza. Talk about that, the entrance into Gaza, what time of day it was, yeah. uh, what the circumstances where where exactly were you? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's you know around 2 p.m. and so we're at the Egyptian side of the border. One thing that, um, and I've been to Gaza five different times um, and twice through Egypt prior to this moment. And one thing that kind of sticks out is, you know, it's totally empty. It feels like a ghost town um, in regards to people who are trying to get in or get out. And so, um, you know, you felt right away that, yeah, that, you know, this this idea of people are trapped in Gaza definitely holds true in terms of this border uh, area. The second we, you know, it takes some time. They're just kind of going through everybody's passports. And then the second we cross over to the Palestinian side of Rafah, the name of the, the border city, it's dark out. And you immediately notice that, hey, there is no electricity anywhere. Even on the Palestinian side of where they do passport control, the lights are off. Like you are you just see the windows where you'd have to give your passport and it's somebody sitting there and it's it's dark because there's no sunlight getting in. And so, um, you know, right away, like, oh, wow, they're serious about this. No electricity blackout sort of thing here in the Gaza Strip. It's it's the real deal. Um, we grab our stuff, we hop into this um, passenger bus and you're heading out and it's totally dark. The, the only thing that you see are the headlights of the bus. And every now and then you catch a glimpse of just how many people are outside and how many tents are around there. And that was kind of, that was, that was really tough to, to kind of take in because, um, you know, I think it's like the, that cloak of darkness, but on top of that, you just, you feel there's so many people out here. It's tent city in Rafah. I mean, I had been to Rafah before. It's a, it's a city of 200, 300,000 people. And now, you know, there's 1.3 million people there, internally displaced Palestinians. And it's obvious. I mean, the roads are packed with people. There's tents everywhere. It's, um, it's taking us forever to move around three miles to get to the guest house for the evening. I mean, it should normally take us 10 minutes once you cross the border. And it took us around 45, 50 minutes just to get there. Um, so 
that part was that part kind of slaps you in the face, uh, just in terms of the sheer volume uh, and overwhelming nature of how crowded the area is. Um, and that was kind of you know that's just that was the that was the first kind of that's the first night. I mean, we get to the guest house, we're all exhausted, so we're ready to go to sleep. About an hour and a half later, I mean, because this is around I would say midnight or one a.m. Everybody wakes up. The house is shaking because you just heard this missile hit, and I mean, I, I I was sleeping. I woke up and my heart was racing. I had never heard something that loud, and you know, you felt like the windows were gonna break. And we all just kind of got up. It was all five of us, and even the 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 people at the guest house who were the staff for the local office, and they were like, "Yeah, that was very close." And so, you know, it was that was that reality check. There was no time to kind of sit there and get oriented or kind of catch up. I mean, that was literally the first moments, you know, the first six hours that we were in Gaza. You mentioned a guest house. Uh, who runs this guest house? Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, in Rafah, what the Israeli military had told NGOs like the International Committee for the Red Cross, the UN, uh, UNICEF, Oxfam, even Met Global, they said, look, there's this area that we're going to call the humanitarian zone. So go over there and, you know, operate out of these places. And so all of the NGOs are huddled into this like small space and they essentially are renting uh, rooms uh, out from locals, you know, who are there. And so they got they, they've been there for probably, you know, a couple of months now, because that's kind of what the direction was in terms of if you want to continue operations in the Gaza Strip, this is the area. And so everybody shares their coordinates. Everybody shares where their guest houses or offices are. And that's kind of where most of the operations uh, take place. Now, is there electricity and water in the guest house? So there, so there, there is what they do is all of these guest house guest house put um, solar panels at the top of their uh, their roof, and they get some electricity. I mean, of course, by the end of the evening, you're out um, because just you know it's solar energy. Um, but yeah, they do that, and then what they'll do is they also will fill up at the top. They fill, they get these tanks of water, and they'll fill it up so that you can have some running water. Of course, you know um, it's all limited supply, but that's definitely something that that was a luxury that we had in uh, in, in Rafah for the for the one evening that I was there for. Wow, you were there for just one evening in that guest house. Yes, because I was tasked with going to Nasser Hospital, which is in Khan Yunis, which is still considered South Gaza but it's further north than Rafah. And um, the reason I was tasked with going to that hospital is it's the biggest remaining hospital in the Gaza Strip that's uh, partially functioning. And it was the center of um, where the military operations were in their highest intensity. So there was a large volume of injured patients that were heading there. Um, and that was where we were told the biggest need was. And so the next morning, that's where we, we went. We head straight for Nasser Hospital. What's, what was it? How do you spell that? N-A-S-S-E-R. Got it. And so I can only imagine how scared I would be. Were you scared? So you know what? I, you know, I wasn't scared, but it was because I was, I was um, first ignorant about what it means to be in a war zone. I'd never been in uh, an active war zone. I had no idea what that meant. And then uh, the second part of this was I was also concerned. I had lied to my family and my community about where I was going. You know, and so there, you know, you have that distraction of just trying to cover up your lie. Right. And so I told my mom, my wife, you know, my sister, my my brothers uh, at my uncles and aunts, everybody, because they were so concerned about me going to Gaza. I just lied to all of them and said I was actually just going to be on the border. You know, I was just going to be on the border. I was going to be working out of there and it was totally safe. But, um, you know, so that was something that I definitely uh, that helped in terms of, you know, 
uh, acquiescing any sort of fears that that came up. But, you know, I tell you that we got up in the morning and we had there, we headed to uh, Nasser Hospital and just walking into the place, you just, all you hear are, you know, exchange of gunfire, tank shelling, airstrikes, drones. I mean, it's the real deal. And we didn't have a second to even put our stuff down. I mean, they were, you know, we, we saw that there were people rushing in, you know, uh, 15 or 20 people at a time just injured from some sort of, we had to get to work right away. And it was definitely overwhelming. And I really, I have to say that the, if it wasn't for the healthcare workers in Gaza, the Palestinian doctors and nurses, just, you know, having that sort of, uh, you know, having, being able to orient us and be in their hospitable nature, just being able to say, Hey, this is where you can find this. This is what you do. This is kind of what we've been doing. Um, I think I would have had a you know mental breakdown. I mean, that's how overwhelming it was. And I work in the South side of Chicago. I work at a trauma center, you know, so um, I work in my, the hospital that I work in, the emergency department is the top 1% in the United States in terms of busyness. And so um, those first, you know, half hour that you're sitting there in the middle of an emergency department and it's swarms of people, you know, I was, you know, I got sweat coming down my forehead and I was like, wow, this is really, really intense. And they, they were able to kind of uh, hold my hand through those first few hours. And, you know, I'm obviously very thankful for that because if it wasn't for them, I'd be an additional burden. So when you say we got to work immediately, I'll yeah. be a little more specific about what you were doing at work. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. So, you know, I am obviously a board certified emergency medicine physician, and there was only one other board certified emergency medicine physician in the emergency department at Nasser Hospital. So he tells me, this is the area where you where we want you to work. What you have is you have some trainees here, some senior residents, um, some interns and some medical students who are volunteering. They tell them what you want them to do, you know, kind of lead uh, the the department while you're here. And um, once you see patients coming in here in this specific area, which is the resuscitation area where you send the sickest and most injured people, get to work. And it was about uh, treating those patients. And I'll tell you what, it is so packed in that hospital, not just with patients, also families sheltering inside of the hospital. I mean, you cannot take five or six steps without seeing a family with like a small mattress and their belongings uh, in the hallway. Um, so it's crowded. It's overwhelming. And I'll give you an example of, of just what the what it looks like in this environment when they bring in somebody who's injured. It's not an ambulance who's bringing in or, or paramedics who are bringing in a, a wounded person. Um, it's actually very rarely, you know, the paramedics. They, they're usually bringing in people who are being transferred from hospital to hospital. It's family members who survived an airstrike or who have witnessed their brother or their daughter get hit by shrapnel or get, you know, uh, get hit by a, a gunshot or a drone strike. And they'll wrap them up in a in a blanket from their house and they will book it. They will run straight to the emergency department. So they run right into the room and they'll put them down in front of you. And you just right away are grabbing your stethoscope, taking a listen while they're telling you the story. You know, you're grabbing any supplies that you need to stitch anything up or put a tube in a certain place. And they're just kind of, you know, uh, different family members are, are trying to fill you in as it's going along. Because in medicine, especially with trauma, we have this um, theory, this principle, it's called the golden hour. You've got this finite amount of time to make a difference in someone's life. You have this finite amount of time to do these interventions that are critical for them surviving the injury. And so you've got, you've got no time to waste here. And so 
Um, I tell you, the vast majority of people that I took care of, I took care of them while they were laid spread out on the floor. I did not even have a hospital cart or bed to put them in, you know, and that um, that has its own challenges, especially when you're doing procedures. Like if I'm putting somebody on a ventilator, it's much harder doing it on the floor, you know, much harder to put a breathing tube down their throat on the floor or put to put a, a chest tube because their lung is collapsed. And I've got to do that on the floor. I mean. It was um, it was very challenging just technically, and it was very challenging from sort of a mental perspective. So let's just think about this in terms of what most Americans are used to when they go to an emergency or most Americans are used to even they're just watching uh, a TV show about uh, ER, et cetera, and so forth. They're like, you know, the doctors washing their hands and then putting in the air to dry them and no one touches everything. Everybody's got masks on. You know, scalpel this, scalpel that. You know, you you've seen this show. Yeah, what am I telling you? You work in an emergency room, right? Uh, and uh, none of that. Like, no. do you even have a mask on when you're? No, no. I, I brought some masks with me, and uh, I didn't. I didn't have a mask on because I didn't have enough time to grab it. But no, there's no masks available in the area. We had some gloves, thankfully, um, that we were able to use. But you bring up a good point because. You know, sterile procedure is so important because let's say you survive a traumatic injury, you survive a, an airstrike um, or, you know, you, you, you get your leg blown off. And so you're an amputee now as a result of this being sterile and sort of keeping the environment clean is of paramount importance because you survive that injury. You may not survive the infection that overwhelms your body afterwards. And I, I tell you, that was not something that we did not have that luxury to be able to keep everything sterile, to keep everything clean. Many people, many of these people who survived these injuries were also battling infections the days after um, while they were recovering in the hospital. Um, so, you know, that was something for sure. I, you know, I'll give, I'll give you this one example too. So, um, you know, we typically, after you're treating a patient, actually after you're eating a meal, doesn't matter, everybody understands this principle, but you go to the wall, you go to clean your hands with some water and some soap. Um, there were many times when I was in Nasser Hospital that it was maybe in the evening time and I would go to open up the faucet and no, nothing is coming out. We were, we ran out of water for the day, you know, because again, they, they also had those tanks at the top of the, on the roof that would, you know, that they would fill up. They try to fill it up every day, but if it's a busy day, you're running out of water, you know? And so, um, we were using, um, some iodine to wash our hands after that. We would try to find some sanitizer somewhere, you know? And so, um, it is, it, it, it was, you know, it was like scenes out of, uh, you know, it felt like World War II, just kind of some of the documentaries that we watched just in terms of, um, you know, not having anything and how many people are being displaced and just the devastation and the damage around you. It's like, you know, it was definitely uh, uh, tough. So if someone has an infection, were there antibiotics to treat that infection? Sometimes, you know, it depends. And that was, that's the other tragedy of all of this is that um, while I was there for, you know, the 20 days that I'm serving uh, in the hospital, uh, eight of those days were total telecommunications blackout. And, you know, of course that affected me. I can't update my family. I can't let them know I'm doing all right. I can't uh, even communicate with the people back in Rafah at the guest house. You know, I, I we was totally cut off from everybody else, you know, and, um, but that's also a public health issue because we were not able to communicate with consultants, with specialists. We were not able to kind of organize shifts. The other part of this is other NGOs who are able to bring in medicines. You're not able to communicate with them and give them real-time feedback about what you need. And so some days you get a shipment and there's some antibiotics in it. Great. Other days it's something that you totally don't need. Um, and so 
you know, there were times where, you know, the, the selection of antibiotics was severely limited. And there were times where we we're like, okay, hey, we've got this stuff. Let's, let's hang it. Let's, let's get it going. Let's get, you know, let's, uh, let's put it in the IV. And so, um, you know, that's the other thing is like, uh, every single day was a new challenge and, you know, it was constantly trying to just work on the fly with what you had. Now you mentioned that, uh, there were the water tanks, uh, on the roof that supplied the hospital with water, uh, and they had to be, uh, filled, uh, every day. Where did people get the water to fill the water tanks? Yeah. So there's two, di- there's two separate, um, types of water that we're, that we'll need to talk about here. One, you, you know, you can kind of get some of the seawater that's there from the Mediterranean. And of course that can be used for a limited amount of things. Maybe you want to wash your clothes or take a bath or wash your hands. I mean, it's not great, but it's something, it's better than nothing. The other part of this is really it's water that's, that's, um, you know, there's a wells that are being dug all the time. And so that's kind of the majority of where the water will come from is these wells. The problem with that is every single time that's being analyzed, it's not fit for human consumption Um, with respect to um, it's being contaminated maybe by sewage lines. It's being contaminated by the seawater itself um, that could be nearby. Um, So, you know, that that's that's kind of the two sources of water that that were being used. And, you know, I think if um, you look at any of these NGOs that take a look at that, whether it's Oxfam or uh, Save the Children, Every t- single time they, they're analyzing this water, they're saying this water is really not supposed to be used for consumption. You shouldn't be drinking this water, but it's sort of what they had to do. Um, otherwise, you were totally dependent on bottled water from eight trucks getting in. And that was, you know, that was few and far between. Yeah. Uh, all right. So now you mentioned uh, you work. So how long were the days that you worked uh, at the hospital? So um, I would definitely um, make sure that I was there by dawn uh, you know i slept in the hospital of course in, in one oh, of the I call rooms upstairs yeah so on the fourth floor which is where the icu was i had a call room there that had six beds and i shared it with um, a general surgeon from uic and an icu doctor from uh from philly actually and um we would i would it'd probably be like 6 a.m i'd go down there i'd hang out in the emergency department and see patients until you know around 5 p.m or 6 p.m and then I go upstairs and there was an intercom where if there was a mass casualty event or there was uh, some serious trauma injuries coming in, they would literally just call emergency doctor to the emergency room, emergency doctor, to the emergency room. And I would go down. And so it was just, you know, really like you're kind of on call for the entire day, the 24 hours. Um, but I would, uh, you know, I try to get some rest, like four or five hours of, uh, of sleep um, and you know, depending on the night that was possible, but there were, you know, towards the end of it, it was getting so intense, especially right around the hospital with the, with the bombing that um, you couldn't, even if you wanted to sleep, you couldn't, it was just way too loud, way too intense. Um, and, you know, your body is uh, in kind of that fight or flight mode uh, when you're hearing that. And so uh, that wasn't really possible those last few days that I was there. Wow. So um, the bombing is almost around the clock. Yeah. So you definitely, I would say there were maybe three or four uh, days where it was, you know, there was like these six hour pauses where you would get kind of the six hours, whether it was at night or was in the afternoon where you didn't hear um, the, you didn't hear the tank shelling or the bombing. You always heard drones overhead and man, those, the drones are so annoying. I mean, you know, Palestinians, they call them Zanana because of the sound. It's like that's and so they that's what they call and it's just nonstop whether it's surveillance or these are drones that are you know capable of of uh, of firing 
um, those things were super annoying and those were nonstop. I mean, the entire time that I was there, you heard three or four of them. And man, I, I mean, you get used to it. But when I came back here, that absence of that noise was, I mean, you're just like, wow, I can't believe those people have to live with that for that long. And the, the buzzing drones, were they dropping uh, wet bombs on people or were they yeah. surveillance? Go ahead. Some of them were surveillance and some of them were capable of striking, which is why um, the recommendation was to not try to capture them on your camera phone just in case they had um, uh, that they could drop bombs. There's also this new thing that I learned uh, from the Palestinians. There's, there's, there's these things called quadcopters, which are these small drones, and those were armed with AR-15s. And we got plenty of people coming through the emergency department with the, you know, with who were kind of shot by these quadcopters. Uh, the reason that they, you know, the reason that these are different than the drones that were above head is that they would come very close to buildings and they would have microphones and speakers on them so that you could, so that the army would communicate with you. And so these were used um, in Gaza City a lot. To, for uh, especially in this area where there were plenty of businesses and organizations telling people to get out of the house. Um, and, um, you know, that was something that was, you know, pretty new. I hadn't heard about that in the 2021 war in Gaza or, you know, 2014. So that was that was something that we had, we gained some experience in is just some of the injuries from those quadcopters. And and what language are you say you're here in the military? I presume you mean the uh, Israeli military. What yes. language uh, are, are the people speaking? You know what? I asked that exact same question to the uh, to an organization there that distributes food. I was speaking with the head of the organization. He told me how 300 of them had to flee because they had three quadcopters come to the windows and tell them to leave. And I said, well, are they speaking to you in Hebrew or in Arabic? Or He said, they're speaking to you not just in Arabic, but in Gaza-Palestinian dialect Arabic. Um, they would use phrases that are, you know, phrases that, Pal that Gazans use, not even people in the West Bank would use. And I asked him to give me an example, and he gave me an example of that there's this phrase in Gaza where they'll say, uh, you know, if you're sweet with me, we'll be sweet with you. And it's a very common thing that, you know, the way they say it. Um, and he said that was what the quadcopter told us. If you're sweet with us, we'll be sweet with you. Like that was the that was the interaction, which is, you know, I to me, I was like blown away by that. I mean, I just, you know, it's just it was fascinating to hear. Uh, and so you think these robots speaking? Do you think it's like an AI thing or do you think it's actually a human being? Definitely a person. It was definitely a person on the other side. Uh, they would even give themselves names, Arabic names. Like, uh, you know, in in uh, in the Middle East, the culture definitely is like um, if you have a kid, you're known as father of that kid. You know, that's why you hear like a lot of Abu, like Abu Muhammad or Abu Qasim or Abu, you know, uh, Ahmad, you know, whatever it is. Um, so you know, some of these people who are on the other side of this, who are kind of speaking uh, as the quadcopter would have their own name, you know, their Abu Khalid or something like that. So in retrospect, do you think that uh, these uh, exchanges, uh, you can't even call them an exchange because there's not a dialogue, mm -hmm. uh, but these communications, if you will, uh, were an attempt uh, by... Uh, the Israeli army to win Palestinians over? No. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I think it was, Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'll say is um, I think the objective uh, of what's happening in Gaza is clear. I'm not a military strategist or an analyst by any means, but I think the Israelis have been very vocal about what they're trying to do. And 
they want to clear the areas. They want to start from the north and head all the way to the south. And that's exactly what they've done. So I think the communications are basically to say, move further south and to get people to leave and go further south. And I think they've, I think it's been, it's been very effective, right? And I think if you look at just the map now of, um, you know, we talked about in Rafah, there's 1.3 million people. If you have 2.2 million Palestinians, the majority of whom used to live in the north of Gaza, um, right now you only have between 250 to 300,000 Palestinians in the north uh, of Gaza. So um, it was it was clear, like that. if you look at the map, the path was very clear, starts in the north, focusing on major population centers in the north. And then that's why when I was in Khan Yunus, which is technically in the south, um, the focus was on Khan Yunus. And it was um, while I was there, I witnessed probably, you know, between 200 and 300,000 people go further south to Rafah. Um, so, you know, that was you know, that was that was definitely a clear objective. Uh, so there's a and I have this in quotes, sort of a method to this madness. Yeah. Uh, and that is to force everyone closer to Sinai. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, there's been no, uh, there hasn't been any, I think, um, vagueness about that. I think the the statements and the communications have been very clear. I think that's why you'll hear the Egyptian president um, say over and over again over the last four months, we're not going to accept any Palestinians in the Sinai. We are not going to accept any refugees in the Sinai. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the push keeps keeps happening. And right now, that's why you know, on top of all of the airstrikes and the bombings and the people who have been killed and wounded, um, the other part of this that really underscores the scale of the humanitarian disaster is that you are forcing 2.2 million people into this, you know, you know uh, very small area called Rafah um, that is not has doesn't have the infrastructure. And then on top of that, you're not getting nearly enough food, water into this place. And, and but the. the uh... The message being conveyed uh, by those voices and the drones is go south and yeah. you'll be okay. Right. Stay right. here and I can't say what's going to happen. Yeah. Am I yeah. accurate about that? Oh, you're you're 100% right. Uh, it's And it's not even, I uh, can't say what happened. It's if you stay here, you will lose your life. You know, you need to go south. South is where, is where it's safe. And then the problem with that is that that's not exactly true as we've seen um, is because, you know, I was in Rafah. It's supposed to be a safe area and there was strikes. Granted, not nearly as intense and severe as Khan Yunus. I mean, Khan Yunus was just out of this world. But um, now what we're hearing over the last four days is the offensive will continue into Rafah. The next stage is Rafah. We're almost done with Khan Yunus. We need to go to Rafah because for whatever reason. And again, it's, you know, that's that's what troubles me. Like coming back now, just seeing what it was like on the ground in Rafah. A, mil a military offensive there with all of those people? I mean, they couldn't even find places, you know, those last few days, they could not find places to put a tent up. And so, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it'll be catastrophic. It's already a humanitarian catastrophe. This is just added to, it's the next chapter of it. So that's something that really, you know, concerns me and is keeping me up at night. Yeah, no, and, um, wow. I'm just pausing and reflecting on that, moving everybody to this one concentrated area uh in the uh, south or near uh, bordering egypt and then yeah. attacking there would be uh, yeah. utter it would there would be no method then um yeah. if you uh all right uh so let's go back to your 20 days so you spent 20 days and nights in the hospital living yeah. in this uh you would sleep for maybe four hours uh, right. in this uh, room mm -hmm. uh, 
now was uh, everybody speaking Arabic? Yeah. The, the, so, you know, what's interesting is in Palestine, medical schools in English. So um, you have to learn all of the terms, all the medical jargon in English. Um, but obviously, uh, everybody's speaking Arabic and I and, you know, I speak Arabic. And so um, a lot of what we're talking about is, is in Arabic. And then every now and then you'll just hear, you know, like, uh, you know, chest tube, ventilator, you know, X-ray, you know, CT, you know. So it's like, um, you, you know, I, the general surgeon I was with is um, is doesn't speak Arabic, but he can kind of follow along. And then I translate for him. Same thing with the intensivist. Uh, she didn't speak uh, Arabic, but she, you know, there's they were able to totally communicate and deliver care. So that was a you know, nice. So all the doctors who joined you coming from the United States, were they Palestinian Americans? I was the only Palestinian American who joined, um, and you know I can kind of share a little bit later on the way out why that became problematic. But um, uh, yeah, the other people were, um, you know, they were they were actually American. All of them were U.S. citizens, Americans, but you know, different backgrounds. Uh, one was Indian, one was Bangladeshi, one was Syrian. Um, you know, so th- we had a, we had a good mix. But I was the only Palestinian. You were the only Palestinian. Wow, that's. Um... And the others, you, they were, there they are operating in this area and they don't even speak the language everyone else speaks. Just adding there yeah. to the challenge, if you will. 100%. 100%. Uh, and yeah. were you um, afraid of dying during these 20 days? You know, I'll tell you, there was two nights where, I mean, it was so intense. Um, I could hear the tanks rolling in. And I remember when I first heard it and it was like this machine-like noise and I was like, what is that? I had asked one of the ICU nurses and he looks out the window. And he goes, those are the tanks here. Take a look this way. And then you could see them and you could see the light on the tank sort of rolling right outside of the complex. And, um, you know, that same day I'm trying, somebody had told me if you go outside of the emergency department, right on the outside where the ambulance bay is and you hold your phone up as high as you can, you might be able to catch some signal from Israel or from Egypt. You might be able to connect and catch a signal. And uh, I remember kind of hanging out there doing that. And then you hear this rapid, you know, exchange of gunfire and you see a couple of bullets hit the wall of the hospital. And I just went, I went right back into the, you know, the, the emergency department. I was like, forget that signal. And I remember we were so concerned with the amount of shelling that we were hearing and the bombs that were being dropped. Um, I'm like, the windows are going to break and we are going to be sprayed with shrapnel because we had seen so we had seen so many shrapnel injuries come through the ER. So I literally took the mattresses that we had and me and the ICU doctor, uh, who's also last name is, is uh, Ahmed, Dr. Ahmed, we put it, we put them on the windows. We put the mattresses on the windows. We slept on the floor thinking that that might be the best way to avoid getting sprayed with some shrapnel here. And I thought to myself, yo, this might, this actually might be it. Like I might, you know, die here. Um, or I thought, you know, the other part of this is, you know, hospitals have been, uh, subject to raids and, and targets, uh, throughout Gaza. And I thought maybe they might raid this hospital and I might get arrested or, you know, it might be in, in detention or something like that. I, I was actually hoping that that would be the case as opposed to, you know, a, a bomb hitting it. And I'll tell you why I also thought that, and I thought it was a real possibility. I mean, I was really concerned about that. There's this famous story that came out of Nasser Hospital uh, a few weeks before I had arrived. And it was this 14-year-old girl, or you know, actually she's 12. Her name is Dunya Abu Muhsin. And Dunya survived her house being bombed twice, five minutes apart. The majority of her family was killed. Her father, her mother, and her two siblings were killed, and one sibling survived. 
Dunya miraculously survived. She had her leg traumatically amputated um, by the bomb. And so she was recovering in Nasser Hospital. So people had heard about her story and they, she had multiple interviews done with her by uh, these different NGOs and different news outlets. They, they captured her story. And what was famous about it is she kept saying, you know, I hope I can get a prosthetic leg. I hope I can become a doctor and help and serve. You know, I, uh, you know, obviously miss my family. I miss my parents, but I have to keep moving forward. I mean, that was the kind of message that she was sending out. And on December 17th, a tank shell uh, burst through her room in the children's ward in Nasser Hospital. It did not explode. It struck Dunya and killed her. And so um, I had went and visited the room that she was in. It's a, you know, no, that, in Nasser Hospital, there's no single private rooms. It's four pediatric patients per room. And, you know, it's kind of an insane story because she's the only one who was killed in this strike. Other people had been injured, but she was killed. And so, you know, kind of in honor of her memory, they keep that space empty. And you can still see, you know, they had been able to kind of put some drywall up, but you can still see where the tank shell came through and how it struck and killed her. And I remember speaking to her nurse and her nurse telling me, you know, her last few days, she was really, really depressed. I mean, she started to notice uh, and feel that absence of her family, you know. And so, um, you know, it's just uh, it was like such this tragic story where she was ultimately killed. Um, and I think everybody knew that, you know, just because. You, you know, we're in the hospital and all of these people, all these families are sheltering here. It didn't make it any more safe. Um, and so, you know, that was crossing my mind and, and during those, you know, those two nights where I just, I remember being so frustrated and on edge and kind of you felt it in your shoulders. I got to the point where I was like yelling, saying like, what, can it just stop? Can they just stop? Like, why do they keep, why is, why is the tank keep rolling closer? And why are, you know, why are these, these F-16s keep flying above, overhead? Anytime you hear, you know, what's the other thing that um, was conditioned in me in Gaza is anytime you hear an aircraft above you, it's not a commercial flight. It's not a commercial plane. There's nobody flying through there. It's all F-16s or F-32s, you know, whatever it is. And then you hear a whistling sound. You, and, you, and you pause and you wait because you know that they just fired a missile. And so you just wait, you hear the whistling and then you hear it drop and then you hear the massive explosion and you're like, okay, that wasn't, you know, that was very close that, but it, you know, it didn't hit. And so those are all things that, you know, uh, I was like, you know, if I, if this, if I'm gone in this number one, my mom is never going to forgive me because I, I lied to her, you know, I didn't tell her, you know, where I was. And then I was just thinking about my kids and stuff and, um, you know, that's the, and I was there for 20 days and, you know, uh, I talked to all these doctors and nurses there and they had been dealing with this for four months. And many of them were in northern hospitals. And so they when they would flee south, they would be able to kind of come to the next hospital and uh, see if they could do some work there. And so they were all super tense. Ben, I mean, I remember telling them, hey, like everything I'm hearing from the WHO is that the hospital is OK, that we're not going to be attacked here. And they would with a dead face, look right back at me like, why would you think that this hospital is any different than, and they would list off the other hospitals, Shifa, Rantisi, Al-Auda, Kamal Adwan, um, and they would just list off those hospitals and say, this hospital is not any different. They're like, it's safe until it's not safe anymore. That's the, that's the story. And, you know, they're thinking about their families who are in tents right outside the hospital and thinking about, I got to go and get them to Rafah. I got to go and move them. And many of them did. They would go take their family in the middle of the night, which is the, most dangerous thing you can do because you're not supposed to be moving, especially after dark. And they would take them to Rafah and then they would come back. And, you know, it's like, 
that was to me it's like yeah i mean i dealt with this for 20 days but 120 days of doing this i don't know how you can function anymore so this is an indelicate question but i i i know some people are thinking i'm not the only one where'd you go to the bathroom for 20 days yeah they i mean they had they in the hospital there's a there is um they have on the each floor they have one bathroom where that everybody can kind of use and in our call room we we had a toilet um but you have to make sure there's water uh so if there's you know if there's no water you ain't gonna be you know you should not be using that you know you should not be doing anything in, in the bathroom there um and so we were able to we were able to do that i you know i'll tell you one doctor He's an ICU doctor, and he was, um, you know, visiting his family in a camp, uh, which was a little further away from the hospital. And he told me that his uh, his mother, who has a bad hip, would have to walk 15 minutes to use the outhouse, you know. And, you know, that was that was that was hard to listen to, you know, for him. He you know, it's just one of the things that is is important to every single person but definitely in Palestinian culture is like this self-dignity just kind of having you know being able to take care of yourself and host people and you know and that's something that was under attack you know that's something that I felt was was you know kind of trying to be it was uh, there was an effort to strip that away from them and so that was really hard to listen to yeah no it's the least of it when you consider it and it's the most of it when you consider if you think about it yeah. um did you at any point in this 20 days have any interaction with Israeli soldiers, like direct interaction, talking to them kind of interaction? No, I didn't. I, I didn't see a single soldier either. Um, you know, I only saw tanks. Uh, I only saw the drones overhead and heard the F-16s. But other than hearing the gunfire go back and forth or an exchange of gunfire, uh, I did not see a single soldier. You know, I didn't interact with one. I think many people had similar experiences throughout this conflict where, um, you know, you kind of you never actually uh, encounter uh, a ground troop or anything like that. I know now that there, there is a checkpoint in the, in the dead center of Gaza. That's, uh, you know, there's like a military checkpoint. So you'll see soldiers and you'll have to um, if you want to try to get into the north of Gaza, which is virtually impossible. Um, but, you know, that's from in my experience, I didn't have to I didn't encounter any of them. And had to what deal with what about a soldier for Hamas? Did you see any of that? No, no. I mean, not even um, wounded or or injured uh, people. You know, didn't see anything like that. I think. Um, I think. You know, they. I think that's something that is uh, was something that I thought about. Uh, I'll say, um, many many people are still in areas. Uh, there are many dead bodies that are still in areas where there was some fighting, uh, where there was some bombing. Um, and it's just too dangerous to go and retrieve any bodies. And so I think once there is a ceasefire, and I hope that's that's soon, um, I think we'll see that the number uh, is much higher than it is. I think um, you'll have access to areas like that. But thankfully, um, did not have to interact with any sort of military personnel uh, whatsoever while I was there. And I think that's, you know, I, I think that's probably a good thing if you want to make sure a hospital is still running. Um, it's just to keep it serving the, the local community. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, so all of this time, your your parents, your family think you're at a checkpoint in the Sinai Desert. Is that correct? Yeah, they think I'm on the border. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. And they you know what, though, my spot got blown up. Um, I got I, I got uh, so, you know, many of these Instagram influencers in Palestine who have kind of been documenting things as they go along. 
um, they're living in tents. And so there were several of them that were living in these tents right outside of the hospital. Like they are, they building their tent using the wall of the hospital. And so, um, you know, a few of them had documented those evenings. In fact, one of them, her name is Bisan, had said, I think this is the last time I'm going to be able to do a story on Instagram because I think I'm going to be killed this evening. And, you know, you can kind of, you saw the panic going on and uh, the, you know, sort of the, you can hear the, the gunshots in the background. And um, one of my very close friends who was like my emergency contact had found out about that and knew that I was there at the hospital and they, and it just spread everywhere. Uh, not just my family found out that I was in Nasa hospital, but the entire Chicago community had found out about it. And I, you know, once I finally got connection, when I was, when I crossed over into Egypt, hundreds of iMessages, hundreds of WhatsApp messages of just people checking up on me, telling me, Hey, we heard you're at Nasser hospital. And so, um, you know, luckily that was towards the end of my time in Gaza, because um, if it was in the beginning or the middle, my family found out, I think they would have, they would have had a heart attack. Or they would have, they would have been hospitalized just from sheer panic. Uh, and all right, so let's talk about uh, your departure uh, yeah. from the hospital after 20 days and nights yeah. uh, uh, on duty there. Talk about yeah. it. Uh, well, it was, you know, as the days were closing in and we were getting ready to leave, uh, I had this really profound sense of like, um, you know, the survivor's guilt uh, because I, at the time, I thought it was going to, you know, I'm going to be able to get out of here. It's so easy to get out. I'm going to go back to safety. Um, the, the, the war was very much in full gear still. Um, we were still hearing the bombing. Granted, it was better than those two nights that I had experienced in the, in the days before, but um, you just felt like there was still work to, to be done. And so it's tough. Uh, you had formed this relationship with the healthcare workers there. Um, they had you know, just told me their stories, got to interact with them. Uh, you know, we, there's not a lot of, by the way, there's not a lot of food and everybody's living, even the doctors and nurses off of the aid that's coming in. So like cans of beans and every now and then some bread and some dates. Um, but they were always so generous with it. And they were, they would always, uh, you know, they would, uh, the entire ICU staff every night would combine all of their stuff and they'd make it together and they would break bread like a family. And they would always invite me and make me eat first. So you kind of developing this bond with these people and you just, you feel horrible. And so they knew and they, they were they were they were upset, too, in the sense of like, you know, you're they want you to they want you to kind of they wish that they could. Um, they wish that it could have been under better circumstances. Um, you know, there's this sort of desire within Palestinian people to, you know, host you to invite you over for dinner to kind of take you out, uh, take you to the beach. So, you know, that it was it was super it was very it was bittersweet um, because. Of course, I was missing my family, but at the same time, uh, you're like, this is something's not right. It doesn't feel right. I mean, I could easily be in their shoes. I'm Palestinian. My parents are Palestinian. Um, if they had decided not to come to the States, I could easily be in this position. And so that didn't sit well with me. Um, and as we're heading out, um, we got we heard um, that, you know, you, there's an approval process of whether or not you can leave or not. Um, and then when it came to me, I was not approved to leave the Gaza Strip. So everybody else uh, on the entire, you know, amongst the staff and the team that had come in uh, from the States, they had gotten permission. All of the bureaucratic stuff was cleared. All the paperwork was good. But for me, they said, I'm not on the list. And that was when, um, you know, we were sitting there like, what is, the, what, how could this be? And it, that's when 
the fact that I was a Palestinian came into play. And I'm a dual citizen. And so uh, apparently that had complicated matters. So right away, you know, I had uh, anybody I can get a hold of. Uh, I called Duckworth's office, Durbin's office. My congressman is Kasten. Talked to the State Department. Talked to the uh, uh, embassy in Jerusalem. And they're all confirming that you don't have approval to leave and we're working on it. We're going to try to get you on this list. Um, and apparently every single day at 9 a.m., the Israelis produce a list of who's allowed to leave the Gaza Strip. They share that with the Egyptians, and then the Egyptians will send that to Palestinians and say, you're, you're on the list, you're good to go. And so we're working on this in the day and a half before we're supposed to leave. And the night before we're getting ready to leave at 7 a.m., at 11.30, I get a message telling me, sorry, we couldn't get you on the list. We're working on it. And, um, you know, I'm just sitting there like, wow, I don't like, what does working on it mean? Does that mean like, can I get in, can I get out in 48 hours? Or uh, is this, we're talking about a week or two weeks? Like, um, you know, I was the the lack of clarity was killing me. You know, I just needed to understand so I can at least figure out what I need to do on, on, uh, on my part. So um, I decided to go to the border anyway with the team the next morning. And I said, I'm going to take my chances. And the second we get there, um, it's pretty clear that I'm not on this list. And um, what I tried to do was just rely on the fact that I can passport. I was waving that the, that blue book around like, you know, <laughs> you know I was born I was born in Chicago. I got to go back to Chicago kind of thing. And so, um, you know, there was some issues. Um, I was able to find... A couple of the, you know, on the, with the Egyptians, we were able to, I was able to see the WHO guy who was going to accept the convoy and take us back to Cairo. And I just, you know, I just went right up to him and I said, look, I'm not going back. Like, you got to get me out of here. Um, you know, this is, you know, this is kind of a joke. I was just so angry. Um, I think many people, and I'll share this with you just to give you an idea of what things on the border are like. Uh, and I, thankfully, I was able to get through um, and make it back to Cairo, but um, there is an alternative route here just because I'm not on the approved list. You could, and this was in a recent article that came out, you could bribe Egyptian uh, soldiers. And the cost of that is around $10,000 per person right now. You know? Yeah. I, uh, and, and that was mentioned to me several times by different people. But I will tell you this. I promised myself when I got that message at 1130 at night that I was not going to be on the list the next morning, I said, I'm not going to pay these people a single dime. I'm not going to pay a dollar to get out. It did not. It's just nothing I was willing to do. Um, and, you know, I mean, despite Durbin's office and Duckworth's office really kind of, I think, uh, empathizing and wanting to get me out, like I can, I felt like they genuinely were interested and they would follow up even after I came back just checking on me. Uh, they, they really couldn't do much. It just kind of tells you, uh, sort of the the powerless nature of of certain things. Um, Caston's office was a disappointment, and I did share that with him in a meeting that I had with him when I came back. I reported back. I let him know that, you know, I'm your constituent. I'm Palestinian. You're the you're the representative for the biggest Palestinian American community, um, and I thought that it, you know they had sent me a, re a generic reply asking me to fill out a privacy release form, upload it back to them so they can share it with the embassy. And I'm like, I barely have you know, two bars on my phone here. You want me to download a form and write in it? So wow. I was pretty upset with that. I let him know. I let him know about that. But whether he cares or not, I think that's... Uh, that's what did he say? Did he say, did he apologize? He said he's sorry I had to go through that and that he gets a lot of requests to his office for help. I said, well, was anybody, uh, you know, trapped in Gaza that's uh, in your constituency? I'd love to hear that. But, you know, yeah, they that's what they said.
and reply mm-hmm. to that. So, but they let you on even though you weren't on the list. Yeah. So that that initial list from a month ago saying we can get in, that's what we basically were were showing them. It's like, hey, you guys let me in. So, you know, there's there's something going on here. And I think yeah. uh, my understanding, and I don't have clarity on this yet. So this is speculation on my part. And this is hearsay, to be honest with you, just to be transparent, is there is a new Israeli law that says maybe Palestinian West Bank, because uh, I'm from the West Bank, won't be allowed into the Gaza Strip during this wartime period. I've not confirmed that yet. Um, and it's something I'm looking into. But I think that may be the issue because other Palestinians uh, who were supposed to be on delegations entering the Gaza Strip after me had ha- have had their trip canceled, and they're all West Bank Palestinians. So, so I think wait, that other Palestinian Americans or Palestinian living Palestinian Americans, yeah, Palestinian okay. Americans. And in fact, the per- the team that was supposed to replace our team, there is an ICU doctor. He is a West Bank Palestinian U.S. citizen, and he was his trip was canceled. So. Yeah, you know, there's something there. We'll, you know, we'll look uh, into. All right. It. So this is sheer speculation on my part, from uh, coming from a guy who has lived in the city of Chicago since 1981. I'll throw that out there. I've never been to Israel. I've never been to Palestine. I've never been to Egypt. I have no idea how their politics works, but I know how Chicago politics works. And there, I always say Chicago is a uh, a parable for the rest of the world. So the attitude in Chicago. Oh, oh, Mr. Doctor Ahmed, you think you're yes. such a big shot? You want to come here and save uh, Palestinians? Well, stay here and save Palestinians. <laughs> yeah, <You're not> like, <laughs> Mr. P- Mr. Big Shot from Cook County in Chicago, Senator, you know, Congressman Castle. That's if you wanted to put a Chicago spin on what they were doing there. That's a Chicago spin. Right, that's, right, right, right. Yeah, I think oh, so. Yeah, come here and save the world. Okay, stay a little longer. All stay right? a little longer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Save a lot of world. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I am right. Yeah. Uh, so you got out. You you uh, got back to Cairo and flew back to Chicago. And I'm yep. sure your family told told you off. That's the last time, son, you ever lie to us. Yeah, they're still uh, telling me off. <laughs> Been a week. Yeah. Mom, go easy on them. All right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um. I don't know. Do you feel like you could go back? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would I would love to. I'll tell you that much. I mean, it's something that I was planning on prior to any of these issues getting out. Um, yeah. I really, really feel like there's a lot of work to be done. I am optimistic that there can be a solution and a ceasefire. And in the event of a ceasefire, what and I'll repeat what people in Gaza told me, is there will be a war after the war. I mean, there is so much um, that has been devastated infrastructure and schooling and all of these things it's going to take all hands on deck and i mean the healthcare system is collapsed and i think i can play a role with that but i think you know i think it's going to require a tremendous amount of effort in a really long time where gaza can become a place that's habitable again um yeah wait when you say a war after the war you mean actual fighting between uh gaza and uh, Israel, or you're speaking war metaphor metaphorically. Yeah, a war on the destruction. Uh, yeah, they 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 mean that um, they mean it metaphoric metaphorically in the sense of this is going to be there's going to be tremendous challenges and a huge struggle after this. Um, and just because the bombs stop dropping, it, it doesn't mean that things will get any easier uh, yeah. to live uh, a normal life in Gaza. And I think um, that resonated 
really strongly with me because they're absolutely right. I mean, everything has been, everything has been devastated. And so um, it's going to be a long, long road to recovery. I just want I want that road to start sooner rather than later. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you come back and you watch from afar uh, your first taste perhaps of Chicago politics. Mm. And uh, that was when the Chicago city council passed last week, a resolution uh, calling for a ceasefire. Uh, it was a 23-23 tie uh, among the aldermen, uh, the alders, I should say, and then Mayor Brandon Johnson uh, passed the tie-breaking vote, a vote made the tie-breaking vote, it passed. Um, and in the aftermath, people who opposed the resolution, I don't want to drag you into Chicago politics, here I am dragging you into Chicago politics. So what a waste of time this was. You guys should have been concentrating on other things, like, I don't know, building a new White Sox, yet another White Sox stadium. Uh, <laughs> the other one is perfectly fine, but don't concentrate on that war in Gaza where thousands of people are dying every day. Instead, let's build another White Sox stadium and another Bears stadium. Sorry, Thera, didn't mean to editorialize there. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's a prudent use of your time. So do you agree with those critics that uh, the ceasefire resolution was a waste of time? Uh, and if not, explain why you think it was beneficial. It was absolutely not a waste of time. Um, I testified in front of the Chicago City Council um, in December uh, when the uh, in front of the Health and Human Relations Committee when they were trying to advance the ceasefire resolution to the City Council. And I mm -hmm. talked to them about just the humanitarian catastrophe in the Gaza Strip. And I just uh, tried to hit them with um, sort of what the concerns were. And, you know, that committee passed it and you know, the vote took place and that's how they were able to, in a procedural way to get this vote in front of uh, city council. Um, you actually mentioned something a couple of minutes ago that um, I will echo. And I think, you know, when you talk about Chicago being a parable for the world, um, it's something that people should keep in mind is, you know, Chicago is a major metropolitan city in the United States. It is supposed to be um, a progressive city, for example. So when we have a president who claims to share uh, progressive ideals, what he will do is he'll look to major cities like Chicago and see how, you know, what, which direction the wind is blowing. And so when you pass a ceasefire resolution like this, it's an indication that there is a large amount of people who belong to your party or who share your values, who feel that this is important. Mm -hmm. And um, don't forget where the DNC is going to be held this summer. Um, so, you know, I think these are all very important things. Um, in regards to just sort of, um, uh, at least for the United States, to get an idea of where our pulse is at. And, you know, um, it, it, thank you for sharing the actual language of the ceasefire resolution. It's language that's being used by um, every single major international organization on the ground. And um, it says something in there about how the percentage of people in America who would support a ceasefire and de-escalation of violence. And guess what? It's the majority of people. So I think it's just um, you know, sort of kind of following in those footsteps. Yeah. It's, uh, so bizarre and twisted and weird. I don't, like I said, I wasn't going to know the politics, but I keep drawing into it right now. As we speak, Israel and Hamas are negotiating through third parties right yeah. now as we speak. Okay. Yeah. But here in the city of Chicago, you're wasting your time. Well, <laughs> that Yahoo and Hamas to deal with that. Go back to that White Sox stadium. You know, Chicago, yeah. they treat you like your little kids. Don't right. talk. Don't think. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, but we can we can chew gum and walk at the same time. You know, we can deal with multiple problems at the same time. It's not going to it's not going to be the end of us. I don't know. I think Chicago's mind has been blown. Whoa, God.
that resolution just overwhelmed us. I'm exhausted. Um, and uh, yeah, you mentioned the DNC. God, is there? Hey, Democrats, move it to Atlanta, please. Don't bring it to Chicago. Okay. <laughs> Good God, whose dumb idea was that? All right, I'm not going to drag you into that one. There, you've uh, been very generous with your time, and uh, I commend you uh, for what I believe was a humanitarian mission. Uh, and I know other doctors who are like going to war zones, man, you guys got, I got a lot of, just a lot of gratitude for doctors who do that. Doctors without borders. It's go out there, man. And I'm, I'm afraid of anything. Okay. So, uh, what you went through, I just thank you for that. You know what I always say? Thank you for your service. So, um, thanks, man. Appreciate that. For your service, man. It was, um, a lot of guts. Uh, all right, we have run out of time. I've I've kept this poor man on this this microphone for over an hour. He's got a family to get to. Uh, he told his mom a, a fib, by the way. He says, "Mom, I'm <laughs> grocery store." No, it's just kidding. <laughs> has your mom forgiven you? She has, she has. But you know, she's she's gonna she knows how to guilt trip me. So I got to do a lot of tasks around the house for her. <laughs> she knows where those buttons are. Yeah, I'll push yep. this. Uh, all right there thank you so much appreciate it uh, very much and we'll bring you on again soon I know uh, you got a lot to offer in this and I'm praying that there is an actual ceasefire uh, and then we can be begin the really and all the other challenges but let's stop the bombing and, and that'll make it easier to deal with those challenges um, anyway thank you very much also I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. And I think a fair will agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace, <laughs> love, everybody. And remember, you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, columns from Ben Jarofsky, the latest newsletter article from Ben that just dropped, all by heading to chicagoreader.com. You can follow Ben on Instagram, at Benny J Show. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.